Thanks very much, Catherine, for reading. Hi, everyone. Let me have my welcome to Mary's from the start. If you don't know me, my name's Mark. I'm the vicar here. And a particular warm welcome if this is your first time connecting with us today. It's great to have you here. We're beginning this new sermon series in the book of Isaiah. Please do keep it open on your phones or if you've got the church Bible open on page 686. We're just going to focus in on the opening 20 verses of chapter 1 and that were just read out to us. And I want to begin by, by answering the question like, why are we spending nine weeks, nine Sundays in this Old Testament book? If you just glance down to verse one, you'll see that this is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. We're not Judah. We live miles away from Jerusalem here in London. What has this book got to do with us? Here is a book we are told, verse one, was written during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. How many of you know who these kings are? This is 790 to 680 BC. This is almost 3,000 years ago. So I can understand it if some of you as we're coming to this book think, well, how can this possibly speak to me and my life today? There is a mountain in the Lake District called Helvellyn. It's a very tall mountain, about 3,000 feet. Um, I've had the pleasure of walking up it um, several times whilst we've been on family uh, holiday there in the Lake District. And it's one of those mountains where you think you're at the top and there's another ridge and you get to the top and you keep going and it's really hard work. But my goodness, when you get to the top and you look around, the view is absolutely breathtaking. The scenery stunning. You can see everything. You see how everything fits together. I put it to you so it is with the book of Isaiah. It is gonna to be tough work, let me just warn you of that. 66 chapters up this mountain of Isaiah. But you get to the top, spiritually speaking, equally stunning. We get to see everything more clearly about God, about ourselves, about how to live life in this world. Could be someone here looking into Christian things. Great to have you with us. We always have people looking into the claims of Jesus Christ. The Bible's a huge book. What's its message? How does it all fit together? Isaiah is a brilliant book for that. This mountaintop, right at the heart of the Bible, you can look back all the way where we've come from in the book of Genesis, where we're going to in the book of Revelation, and how it all fits together. Regulars here, something we're passionate about, week by week, getting to know God better. Know our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to grow deeper into our appreciation of his love for us, the depths of it that knows no limit, to rest more deeply in his grace that knows no bounds. And I put it to you that this book of Isaiah can do that for us. 66 chapters bursting forth with the majesty, splendor, love, grace, and mercy of God. The more creative, artistic amongst you, you're going to love all the poetry all the imagery and the sort of the cyclical way that God speaks to us through this book. The more scientific of you, that's me, you're going to find this a little bit harder. Okay, I'm with you on this, but let it stretch our heart, our mind, our soul as we learn to hear God speak through this particular genre of prophecy. All the way back at the beginning of the church, Augustine, already they were describing Isaiah as the fifth gospel because of how momentous and majestic it is in scripture. That's why we've called this sermon series The Gospel According to Isaiah. So that's all by way of introduction. Come with me now to chapter one. And let me say that chapters one to five 
are like an introduction to the book. So Isaiah doesn't actually get called and commissioned by God until chapter six. This is like an introduction. And chapter one is like an executive summary of this introduction. So this is all very high level stuff, right? As we are just introduced to some of the major themes of the book. But God does not muck around here. He, he jumps straight in. There is no gentle introduction. I'm not sure what you thought of it when you heard the reading. There's no sort of easing into this message. We are brought right into a law court. God is the prosecutor. And heaven and earth is God's witnesses. God's people, Judah, are in the dock. And did you recognize there God's charge against his people? You rebellious children. All right, so that's where it begins. Look down with me at verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Here is the maker, creator of the universe, addressing his people. And what does he say? I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Here is God, pictured here as a loving father who has reared his children, the original people of Israel, brought them up, reared in the sense of rescued them from slavery in Egypt, fed them with food and water miraculously in the wilderness, gave them their law so they could know how to live in his world, gave them the sacrificial system so that they could be forgiven when it goes wrong, promised his presence with them, the tabernacle, the temple, brought them into the blessings and joy of the promised land, reared them, done so much for them over hundreds of years, brought them up in the sense of chosen them as a light to the nations through them. Blessing would come to the whole world. What more could God have done for his people? And yet, even they, my chosen people, have rebelled against me. So what is it about the human condition that deep down in every human heart is this seed of rebellion, even amongst God's own people, who is there with Adam in the garden of it, is here, is here with every single one of us. But naturally, by itself, left to ourselves, it will turn, we will turn our backs on God. Even they have rebelled against me. Do you know something of that seed of rebellion? What seed of rebellion? You say, that seed of rebellion. Even the ox knows its master. Even the donkey, its owner's manger. But God is saying, my people do not. They doubt my love. They forget who they belong to, where they've come from. Looking for life and meaning and satisfaction apart from God. The one who made them and loved them just as a father loves his own child. Now, of course, let me just be clear that not all rebellion in and of itself is wrong or bad, right? Resisting, corrupt, abusive, unjust people, authority, power structures, that is a good thing to do. But to rebel against someone who is all-loving, all-powerful, perfectly just, the person we've come from, who we belong to, who we're made for, where life and meaning is to be found, to rebel against him, to rebel against God. That is the greatest tragedy 
in the universe. So hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, to what my own people have done. Now, just to be clear, God is not railing against his people here, right? Just ready to bring destruction upon them as soon as they put a foot wrong, paralyzing them with guilt. Sometimes we can feel that as we read passages like that. God is putting up a mirror to their soul. God is bringing this charge to his people so they can see the error of their ways and then come back to him. Notice in verse five, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Come back. Look at the imagery here. Let the, the force of it hit you. Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness. Only wounds and bruises and open sores. Not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Here is a picture of life without God. Here is a picture of trying to live life without him. Going against his good plans and purposes for our lives. Here is the natural consequence of this sin and rebellion. It is awful, this picture of this person beaten, bruised, wounded, afflicted from head to toe and no soundness in them. We see the seriousness of turning our backs on God, forsaking him, spurning him in any way. I want to be free to have sex with who I want when I want, not recognizing the emotional, psychological, spiritual damage that we do to ourselves, do to our body and soul, and God is looking at his people with care and compassion saying, why are you going down that road? Come back, come back to me. Come back to the joy of sexual intimacy within the stability of marriage as I always planned and intended it to be as a gift for you. Millions of young people today being told it's their body, their choice. You can be one of 129 genders. You can be a boy or a girl, even if you're a girl or a boy. Not recognizing the untold and irreparable terrible damage that can be done to themselves, their bodies, as we go against God's good plans and purposes for us, male and female, body and soul, how he has made us to be. And God looks with care and compassion, why? Why are you going that way? Don't you see what you're doing to yourselves? Come back to me. And if we are in any doubt as to where this rebelling against God ultimately leads, look at this second piece of imagery given to us in verses seven to eight. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields stripped by foreigners, Verse eight, daughter Sion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Some people, some commentators take these verses literally think it's referring to the Assyrian um, invasion around 701 BC. But I think that this is still to be taken metaphorically, like, like, like. Remember this is the high level beginning, the introduction. I think God is giving us another picture here of what is true 
for the end result of all rebellion against him. Left to ourselves, unless, verse 9, the Lord Almighty had left us without his restraining hand, we are left like Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that were destroyed completely in Genesis 19. Where does life without God go? You cut yourself off from God, the source of life. Where does it end? Desolation, death, destruction, hopeless, helpless, like this shelter in a vineyard, a a hut in a cucumber field. Now at this point you might say, Mark, hang on a second, I thought you introduced this by saying, we're going to have a breathtaking view as we go through the book of Isaiah and there's going to be some wonderful scenery for us and this is all quite depressing, this start, all this talk of rebellion and desolation and what do we do with this? Okay, well hold on, we just started, sometimes we have to recognize the lows before we appreciate the heights. And God wants us to recognize the low of the human condition and the seed of rebellion in every human heart and the catastrophic consequences of it so that we come back to him. Do we see just how big a problem this is? Back in 2015, the world's leaders convened together to address the major problems facing humankind. They were setting the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, compilation of 169 targets to be hit by 2030. You can imagine what some of these problems were identified as. Eradicating poverty and disease, stopping war, protecting biodiversity, improving education, dealing with climate change. Not one of them mentioned this. Humanity's rebellion against God. The most catastrophic in consequence, the most universal in nature, and the one probably most derided in Western society today. And the question for us is how seriously do we take what God is saying here? Do we hear him on this? Do we recognize the human condition? Are we alert to this seed of rebellion in our own heart? Do we see where it leads? And if so, come back to him. The loving, heavenly perfect father that he is come back to him that's the call and the call continues in verses 10 to 17 as the lord now moves on to his people's worship and he he exposes it and diagnoses it as meaningless and worthless so you thought verses 2 to 9 had some strong language in it wait till we get now to verses 10 to 17 glance down with me Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's now describing his own people as Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I have had it up to here with your burnt offerings. Hang on a sec, Lord, I thought you told us to bring the burnt offerings to you. Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Literally, offerings of nothing. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Verse 14, your feasts and festivals I hate with all my being. If you thought to yourself, what is it that God hates in the very depth of his being and soul? Would you think this? This is his own worship. This isn't worship of other idols or other gods. This is worship of himself. And something has gone so horrifically wrong that God now hates it with all his being. They're even praying to him in verse 15. We know prayer is fine. And yet God says, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Now, I don't know about you, but these verses send shivers down my spine. 
that God may ever say anything like that of our worship here at Inspire St. James. Worthless, meaningless, detestable, unbearable. What did the people get wrong? This is God's people under the old covenant. We better not get it wrong today. What happened? Two things happened. First, they lost sight of God amongst all their worship. Just glance down with me at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? God's people at the time have transformed the sacrificial system into a mere formality and external obedience, forgetting the very heart of the sacrificial system, which is to appear before God and have relationship with him and have our sins forgiven so our relationship is restored and to commune with him. But they've completely lost sight of God with all this trampling of the animals in the courts and all the sacrifices. And God is saying to them, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I want you. So here's a quick fire question for regulars here. Why did you come to church this afternoon? Okay, instinctively, what, what did you think? Why did you come to church this afternoon? Because I always do, because I meant to. Because I like the preaching, the singing, the fellowship because the liturgy and the Lord's Supper fit my style of worship. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. What is missing? God is missing. And it doesn't matter how much we're here doing stuff and going through the motions and saying the words and singing the songs, if we're not doing it to God and for God, with God, my goodness, then our worship is meaningless, worthless, unbearable and detestable. Now, I find this hugely challenging. And often I'm leading a service and I'm, we're singing the songs. I'm thinking, okay, what am I saying next again? And I'm not actually singing and singing praise to God. Sometimes I can find myself just parroting the confession, which we say every week, which is there to internalize so we know exactly what we're saying to help us confess our sins to God. Am I actually confessing my sins to the Lord? As I'm preaching now, am I preaching just to you? Or am I preaching ultimately to an audience of one? Now, how are you getting on? Are you here singing to the Lord? Are you confessing your sins to the Lord? Are you here to meet with him, to commune with him, to go deeper in your relationship with him as you're listening to my words now? Is it just my words? Are you listening out to the voice of the Lord, speaking to you through the preaching? What is he saying to you? How are you responding? This is what we've got to be about. This is the heart of true worship. Let us never lose sight of God here at this church. Second thing that they get wrong is as they're coming to the Lord in worship, they are hiding their sin from him. In verse 13, that phrase, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, literally means I cannot endure your iniquity and solemn assembly. In other words, what is detestable to God is the way they are coming to him in worship, but doing so, hiding their sin from him. Not confessing their sin to him. Coming to him in worship unrepentant. 
And God says, that is what I find detestable. It's more explicit in verse 15. If you're worried, my goodness, the prayers, why is God not listening to them? Do you notice just at the end of verse 15, it says, because your hands are full of blood. Coming to God, worshiping him when, not literal murder, I mean, it might be that. But Jesus says there's all forms of murder, anger, passive-aggressive comments, backbiting, gossiping, withholding a spirit of forgiveness. Later on, in verse 19, They're not seeking justice. They're not defending the oppressed. They're not taking up the cause of the fatherless or the case of the widow. The point is this. Do not hide your sin from God. Doesn't matter how expressive you are in worship. Doesn't how much external forms of obedience you bring. A multitude of sacrifice of praise. If we are deliberately holding back a part of our life from God, He says, your prayers will fall on deaf ears and that worship is meaningless to me. So let's not do wrong, verse 16. Let's learn to do right, verse 17. Let's come back to him. Let me just say that I think this is all very timely given what's happening in the Church of England at the moment. Not sure if you're aware of it. I did mention something uh, last week in the what's coming up, but... Synod coming up Wednesday 8th of February, going to be discussing some proposals based on the living in love and faith process. If out of that there is any hint from the bishops that they are moving from the biblical doctrine of marriage as God has revealed it to us, if there is any hint of prayers of blessing for something, for behavior that God clearly calls iniquity, then it doesn't matter how much the bishops are joining together in worship of God. Those prayers will fall on completely deaf ears. And God will say the worship is detestable. So we need to pray. Urgently, continually, for the Church of England bishops to worship God in spirit and truth. And we need to pray that for ourselves as well. Here is God calling us back to him. Now, you say it's too hard. It's too hard to come back to God because, you know, I've, I've been walking down that road of rebellion a long way, perhaps this past week. You know, there are areas of your life where you've been deliberately resisting what God's word says, what God wants, and you're hiding your sin and you feel the guilt and the shame pressing upon you. And you find it really nerve-wracking to come back to God and to be honest to him because you're thinking, does God really want me back? After all I've said, all all the things I've done, does he really want me back? Can I be open with him? If that is you, listen to God's words here in verse 18. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Come to me, come here, let's talk this through together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Do you hear God promising you, every one of us here, complete cleansing of our sin? 
if we come to him. The image here back then when you dyed material red, scarlet back then, it would never come out no matter how much you washed it over and over again. The stain would be so seeped it would cling together with the clothes. It was permanent. And sometimes our sin can feel like that. The guilt weighs down on us, the shame we feel. We're trying, like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare, we've got blood on our hands and no matter how much we clean and wash and clean and wash and try and do other stuff, it's still there. And here is God saying, come to me, I will make you whiter than snow. I will forgive you, I will cleanse you, you'll be pure and righteous in my sight, your slate wiped clean, our relationship with sword both now and into eternity. Now are you beginning to see some of these breathtaking heights I said at the beginning of God and his grace and his love and his mercy despite our sin and rebellion. Let's go through the lows so we can see the heights that God takes us to. So if you're someone here thinking, does God really want me back? The answer is yes, he does. Yes, he does. This promise was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God born into this earth faced the epitome of human rejection and rebellion as the Jew, his own people rejected him, the Roman authorities put him onto a cross for to die for a death he didn't deserve. And yet as his blood poured from his body, his blood was being shed for you and for me and for all our sin and rebellion so that we can be washed clean, forgiven forever if we come to him. So come. Come back to him right now. Whatever's in your mind and heart right now, thinking, oh my goodness, I've done that, I've done that. Just give it to him right now. Commune with him, relate to him, connect to him. It's why we're here, to worship God. And know he forgives you in Christ. And know you are pure and righteous and loved and belong to him forever. To live afresh for him in the week ahead. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for this opening section of Isaiah, some really strong language in it, but you want us to be aware of the human condition. You want to be aware of the seed of rebellion in every human heart, where it leads to. And insofar as we feel that conviction of sin right now, please would we not hide it from you. Please would you help us to be open and honest with you as we see the certainty and wonder of your promise to us of complete cleansing. Though our sins were like scarlet, you will make them as white as snow. Please reassure us of your love, your care, your compassion, your calling back to us right now. And as we hear your voice personally now, help us to run back to you so that we may live afresh for you in the week ahead. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.